Yeah, so I spent a week with Elon. This was on a, we went to um, a, a lunar eclipse. So we were on a boat. And I wouldn't say that he has Asperger's. I would say he's shy. He is shy. And, you know, I, I enjoyed talking to him. But, you know, he wasn't one that volunteered to be. He wasn't talkative, let's put it that way. So maybe he does. Maybe in his view, he might have a slight touch of Asperger's. But he does pretty well. How did that uh, come about that week? Well, that came about because my uh, son-in-law, Sergey Brin, said, we've got to go... Co-founder of Google? Co-founder of Google. Yeah, right. Um, it's like... I love eclipses, and we're going to go to this eclipse. I had never been to an eclipse, ever. So I was like, sure, I'll go to this. Anyway, it was remarkable, I must tell you, shocking, because the eclipse happened, it was kind of like 12 or 1 in the afternoon, and the whole sky went dark. I mean, like, really dark. But I thought, well, it's not a big deal. But the big deal... All the birds went nuts, and all the animals went crazy. And the birds were like, like, they didn't know what to do, because, like, we haven't planned for this. (laughs) Anyway, it was quite an experience. Did you go somewhere to see it? Yeah, we went somewhere, and I can't remember where. It was somewhere like the South Pacific. We were on 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 a yacht. Wow. Who Who else was there? Elon Musk just happened to be on the yacht? Yeah, Elon was, and his um, second wife was there. There were some other celebrities there, too, that I actually can't remember all of them. Uh, and, of course, Anne and Sergey. And, um, yeah, and some kids, you know, their kids. It was nice. It was a very, it was an interesting experience. But um, I didn't expect to hear from the birds. The story is that Google was started in a garage. Right. Is my it true that it was your, my daughter's garage? It was your garage. Well, actually, she had just bought that house, and um, and I helped, and so I was there all the time. Yeah, I was there actually even before they came back from their honeymoon. I had moved all their furniture into the house, and everything was all set for them. So, well, what did you set up for them? Well, I'm not sure she would want me to tell. Um, you know, I I moved a lot of their... They had been living in an apartment in Palo Alto, and I just moved everything from the apartment in Palo Alto to their house. And, um, it was, you know, dressers and beds and sofas and everything. And so she was sort of thankful, not really, because she's like, Mom, maybe I didn't want it in that room. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, I just maybe shouldn't have moved at all. <laughs> But that's what I did. This was Susan, right? Yeah, Susan. She's now the CEO of YouTube. That's right. That's crazy. I know. Your other daughter's uh, company just went public. That's right. 23andMe with Richard Branson. When you had Google in your garage, did you see the potential in them? What did you see in them? That was a no-brainer. It was, like, incredible. And that was in 1998, 99. And then Larry and Sergey were kind of engaging. They were, you know, they were very uh, inspirational because they were so passionate about it. What, what else did the garage look like? When they first got it, it just had a ping pong table in there. And <laughs> I don't know, a couch. Susan, I think, moved a couch in there for them. It was, you know, it was just a garage without a lot of stuff in it. But um, they quickly brought a ton of stuff in there. It was pretty incredible. They brought in all their computers, and there were a lot of them. And they all, there were wires all over the place. I mean, the wires were like, 
I don't know, 12 inches wide, wires running all over the place. He had to step all over the wires to walk, see what it's like. And they brought in a team of other young people, and it turns out they were hungry all the time. <laughs> and so at night, they became kind of like little mice. You know, they were running around, taking food out of Susan's refrigerator. And uh, Susan's like, I rented them the garage. I didn't think I was going to feed them. <laughs> and now Google is, it's almost like its own city, the Google campus. Have you been there? Yeah, the one. It's huge. I mean, they, enormous. they that's right. They have a lot of Mountain View. Now they're into Sunnyvale. I mean, there's Google campuses all over the world. San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, huge. I mean, the building in New York is a whole city block, huge. And then I've been to the one in Singapore. I've been Paris, Munich, you know, all over the world. There's a lot of Google campuses. I remember when it first started, though, with that name. And I just remember seeing it and thinking to myself, Google? What kind of crazy name is this? And I remember the, the advertisement. I used to wear a Google shirt all the time. That was part of the advertising strategy. I was like, <laughs> you know, they didn't have a budget. So you just had to wear it. So today it's really a big deal. But I remember wearing that Google T-shirt in Europe. And then people would come up to me. It's like, what is that? <laughs> it's like... It's a search engine. What's that? You know, they didn't even know what that was. So the strategy was working then? Oh, the strategy. Yeah, the strategy was working. A lot of people wanted to know. It grew really fast. Well, once people used it and realized that they could get <clears throat> all the information that they wanted easily, they told their friends and their friends told their friends and everybody, it started to grow like crazy. So it's very exciting to be part of that. Are you still involved with Google? Yeah, I still am involved. In what capacity? Uh, well, I still work with the education team. You know, I worked to develop the Google Teacher Academy and Google Docs, Google, all those products for the classroom. And I, I don't know, I saw the potential in it. I had no idea you were so involved with all the Google Docs and those sorts of tools. I was. I was the... I pulled the whole thing together to start. In other words, I was the one that said, hey, Google, you need to have an education department. You need to have education. And their response usually was, why do we need education? I mean, Google is education. And it's, you know, you want to find something, you just type it into Google. I said, teachers need special things. They, they, yes, they like Google, but they need to have special programs. And so that's what I worked on. Google Docs, Sheets, presentations. And how did Susan become CEO of YouTube? Because the way you describe it with her in the house saying, I just rented you the garage, makes me think she's not super involved, at least at the start. She was not at all involved at the start. I mean, she just like, hey, these two guys want to use your garage. Okay, fine. But in six months, she realized also that they were onto something. And so she joined their team. I think she was employee number 16. And then she's the one that also found YouTube. She found it. She's also the one that helped promote Google's purchase of YouTube. She was their first and most powerful advertising manager. You know, she was in charge of coming up with a way for Google to make money. Because when they hired her, they said, well, we know how to find information. We just don't know how to make money. That's your job. <laughs> you figure it out. And so she did together with, there was a team of people that did it. Marissa Mayer was on the team. Marissa became head of Yahoo, and today she has her own company. She's doing some amazing work. I can tell you that that initial team of people, they're still doing amazing things to change the world. It's a great, it was a great group. And even though Larry and Sergey basically retired, they're still on the board of Google, but they're taking, they're taking some time off 
let's put it that way. They, they feel that they want to give other people an opportunity to do things. I, I sometimes forget that YouTube was an acquisition for Google. Oh, yeah. They bought it. Yep. And it was just a tiny little thing when they bought it. How, how do you end up having two daughters who are CEOs? And your third daughter is also, she's like a Fulbright scholar, a professor of pediatrics at UCSF. Right, that's right. And she's the epidemiologist for pediatrics at UCSF. Oh, so now, the last couple of years must have been hectic. Well, now she's driving us all crazy because, you know, she's like, tells us about all the things that are happening and how the virus is being transmitted and how to be careful, and I was like, oh, brother, help. I don't really want that. So that's, yeah. But she's, they're all pretty, they all have a good sense of humor. You would like them. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, well, I kind of have a crazy sense of humor too, and so um, they kind of learned it from me. No, I remember you have a crazy sense of humor. I remember you'd walk into class uh, for people who don't under, like don't know about the Campanile, who don't understand the Campanile, in its current form, the Campanile and the whole Palo Alto High School journalism program is a multi-million dollar program in a multi-million dollar building with tons of equipment and resources. But it didn't start out this way, right? No, I started in 1984. I was in, I think it's room 36 in the tower building upstairs. And That's kind of the rooms the far, nobody uses, right? Right, the far corner room. And there were only 20 kids in the class. And I think the main occupation of the class, besides, you know, in the beginning they were, it was a regular class. I had to listen to the teacher because that's what they told me to do. But as time went on, I switched it around to give them more control but I do remember the most exciting thing for the class was sliding down the banisters on the stairway. <laughs> and, then, and then I gave them the opportunity to do a lot more themselves, and that culture changed. And then the class grew. It was very interesting to see. And also, we were just pasting up at that time, typing it up on a typewriter, uh, the stories. As a matter of fact, I hired a student who I paid a dollar an hour to type for students who couldn't type. Child labor. Nice. Child labor. <laughs> a dollar an hour. God, I can't believe I did it. And then you got your story and then you cut it out with razor blades or with an X-Acto knife. And then you pasted it up with wax, hot wax, on a pasteboard. That was how it started. And then in 1987, I walked by this Town and Country Village, and I saw a Macintosh in the window. I'd never seen one, ever. And I was really, I, didn't, I was speechless, to be honest, because this Macintosh, it said, hello, <laughs> on the screen. And then inside, somebody was doing a demo, and I could not believe what I saw. It was so exciting because I thought, my students don't have to type it up anymore. And, you know, then erasing was really a nightmare. This way you just backspace and then get rid of the word that you don't want. They were $5,000. That was a lot of money back then. But, you know, I found by accident this little application that I could apply to the state of California for a grant to buy six of them. I applied for it. And I can tell you that the principal told me I was wasting my time. Everybody told me, this is ridiculous. You'll never get it. And not only that, you don't even know anything about Max, which is true. I didn't. But that didn't stop me. I just applied anyway. And I got them. And that's how the whole thing started. And now the Media <laughs> Arts Center is sponsored by the Nike Innovation Grant. That's right. That's correct. I don't know a lot of high school teachers who were once sponsored by Nike. That's true. That is really, I'm very honored. It was great to have that Nike Innovation Grant. The you know how that happened? 
I was giving a talk in the Media Arts Center, and the representatives from Nike were there. Anyway, it's a long story, but I can tell you the short is at the end of that talk, they're like, we're giving you a grant. <laughs> I was like, sure, I'm never going to dispute this. This sounds great. So that's how I got the building. I was really excited. <laughs> and so were the kids. I mean, when we moved into that building, you were never in the portable, and, which is probably good. Those portables, um, they had a reputation of their own. Um, so frequently, you know, the air conditioning wouldn't work or, you know, there were all kinds of things. And as the program grew, they connected the portables to each other. I don't know if you've ever seen... The portable classrooms? Yeah, I, yeah. I had classes there. Yeah. So all the connections were because of the Campanile. They connected it to accommodate more students, you're saying? That's right. Connected it to accommodate more students. But it was it was pretty funny, you know, because so in the middle of the summer, the air conditioning always took a break. So we would frequently have to have class on the lawn or something like that. It was... Well, I was really happy to get a building where the air conditioning actually worked consistently all the time. <laughs> what percentage would you say during the two years I was there were you actually in class? Um, I don't know, maybe 50. Maybe 50. <laughs> <laughs> I was there and then I wasn't there. I was busy giving talks all over the world. And so I was coming back and forth all the time. Um, so during the other 50%, this is while you were teaching at Palo Alto High School, you would go and do these talks at other places. But even when I was there, I tried to have a low profile. And because, um, you know, students won't do it for themselves if the teacher's there doing it all the time. So I had to back off. What have you been doing uh, since retirement? Oh, I started two companies. have two startups. What are they and called? And a third possible one in Mexico. What, what are they called and what do they do? Well, one of them is Tract, T-R-A-C-T dot app. And it's trying to recreate the culture of the Campanile class online. So it's peer-to-peer online learning and it's project-based. And the ideas all come from the kids. So teenagers age 15 to... Uh, well, I take through college, so 15 through 22, 23, create learning for kids age 8 to 15, 8 to 14. Interesting. Uh, what's the, what are the other two? The is other it- company is called WOJIT, W-O-J-I-T, and um, it is with UC Berkeley School of Engineering. They're using my teaching pedagogy to teach engineering skills. And so a lot of their classes are online, and the question is how to make them really effective as opposed to the Coursera type. Have you ever? I've done some Coursera Coursera. courses. So the problem with Coursera is that about 90% of the people drop out and only 10% complete it. And the ones that complete it are usually college grads. And that's because they are persistent and they know how to study and it's really, it's a way for them just to get more information. And so my, my theory is Coursera would be much more engaging and effective if you could do it together with a group or with friends. And so that's kind of what Track does. You're doing all these things together with friends, only the learning is created by a teenager. And the reason why is that good? Well, there's nobody more influential in a kid's life than someone just a little older. And then the third one, maybe in Mexico? It's called uh, FW Institute. And um, FW stands for Ferrara Wojcicki. And it's a guy that, you might have seen him. He came to the Campanile. um, He came with a group of people from Mexico. I remember this. Yeah, and so he started, uh, it's sort of like um, Starbucks on steroids. And um, because what they do is they offer online learning, but at the same time you can get 
coffee, tea, snacks, bagels, food, whatever. And uh, you can actually go to the gym and then come back. So it's a combination of food, intellectual stimulation, and physical exercise. It's called FW. So the same company is uh, doing all those things at once? or They're all different, all different companies. Interesting. So th- one of them, st- Tracked, is the CEO is a former Campanelli student. Oh, no way. Yeah. There's a, a lot of prestigious Campanelli alumni. I mean, the, the Francos, uh, right. James and Dave Franco both did Campanelli, right? Right. Uh, how many years ago was that that you taught them? It was in the 90s. Yeah, I've forgotten exactly what the date is. And then we had a lot of visitors to the Campanile, who I remember you saying were alumni, some some uh, high-position person at The Economist. Oh, yeah. So four people at The Economist that are f- former Campanile. <laughs> Very exciting, to be honest. And it's fun to be interviewed by them years later, yeah. all I can say. I lucked out. <laughs> Well, it's hard to say it's exactly luck because all these places want to have you speak, right? I mean, I, this must be the 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 most low-key speaking engagement you do because you've spoken at all sorts of places, right? This is very low-key. This is very pleasant. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. <laughs> but, um, yes, so in the last three weeks, I have spoken at in Kazakhstan, you saw what's going on in Kazakhstan. They didn't tell me there was anything coming. The Ukraine, also, Moscow, and China. Wow. And that's just in the last three weeks. And prior to that, I was literally all over. If you can just you think of con- countries uh, like Lithuania, Estonia. I haven't spoken in France, though, which is kind of peculiar because I actually speak French. <laughs> right. You have a degree, right? You have a degree from the Sorbonne. Interesting. So I'm hoping I will. I've just connected with people in France. I tried to time them so that I wasn't gone that long, but um, yeah, that's, that's correct. When you went and did these talks in all these countries, yeah. uh, you'd bring people back, right? Yeah, that was the exciting part for me is I would bring back a lot of people in these countries that I'd gone to, to speak in the Campanile class. And I thought it was great because it gave the classes an international experience. You would, I mean, high school teenagers, they would never have these opportunities if I hadn't done that. And I think one of the biggest opportunities, I don't, not sure you were in the class at the time. It might've been the year before. Vincente Fox, were you there for that one? I don't think I was. He's the president, former president of Mexico. And I had him come. And he talked to all the journalism classes. And then Stanford got wind of the fact that he was there. And they're like, well, you forgot about us. And I was like, OK, OK. <laughs> you can, he can speak at Stanford, too. And then Berkeley said the same thing. So then he went to speak at Berkeley. He was very nice. He accommodated really well. This was the president, the former president of Mexico, the country. That's correct. Vicente Fox, the former president of Mexico, the country. (laughs) He's a great man, by the way. And to give a picture, I mean, the Campanile classroom, when we say that someone's speaking there, it's not an auditorium. Like 60 kids in a normal-sized classroom. Right. That's right. I remember... Pretty much every time, almost every time, we'd see you come into the classroom, you were trailed by six or seven people, and you'd say something like, hi, this is the education minister of Nigeria coming to study the classroom structure in Brazil or whatever it was at the time. Right. I remember Brazil, actually. They they told me they were just sending a few people, and I was, okay, no problem. And they must have sent 40. <laughs> right. There were a lot of people from Brazil. And they came multiple years. I remember one day being in the Campanile classroom, and we would be there early, just hanging out, talking to our friends. And I noticed right outside the classroom, there was this big white guy with a suit. 
and uh, a tie and, and an earpiece and a little American flag pin on his lapel. And I started looking around and I noticed there were more of those in the media arts center where the classroom was. And then you came in with current California governor, Gavin Newsom. That's right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I brought Gavin. He said he would come for 20 minutes. Remember, he stayed for two hours. <laughs> it was great. He's a great speaker. And people got really excited about seeing him. And he was very, and still is very interested in education in California. He's doing a lot. And yeah, you're right. I remember that was kind of exciting. How did, how did that happen? Like, why, why was he coming to Palo Alto in the first place? Well, it turns out he wasn't coming to Palo Alto. But I heard that he was going to, like, Sunnyvale or something. He had a meeting somewhere else. So then I called his office. And I said, um, I introduced myself, and I was like, can he come drop by my class? I mean, he's here. You know, he doesn't have to make a special trip. He can just drop by while he's, you know, en route. And they all thought it was a little crazy. It sounds crazy. <laughs> but then they put him on the phone. I was like, Gavin, how about coming to class? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, where is it? Tell my security team and I'll be there. That's how it happened. And you guys, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say he's an incredible speaker. He talked to you afterwards for a while, right? Yeah, he stayed for another hour. And um, I put him in one of those little rooms, you know, in the atrium area uh, with some other students wanted to talk to him separately. So I was like, sure, you can do that. And then he talked to me for a while. And, I mean, my main focus with Gavin Newsom is what can we do to help improve education in California? And that's still my main focus. I'm trying to think. Ariana Huffington also visited, right? Yeah, I got Ariana Huffington. <laughs> that's right. I think this was right before I joined. I remember seeing a photo of Ariana Huffington just inside our high school classroom. How did that happen? Um, it was another one of these things that I found out that she was going to be visiting California. And then I just called her up and said, well, how about coming to my class? My students would really appreciate you. And she did. She said yes, and that's how she came. That was pretty amazing. How do you get someone like Ariana Huffington's phone number? Google? <laughs> Google it. No, I, I had met her before at another conference. So as you know, I'm kind of social. And right. when, when I go to a conference, I meet a lot of people, and then I get their contact information, and then I follow up. And I, I enjoy having people come to the class. I think they enjoy it, too, being able to interact with students. And then it's great for the students. And that's my main reason for doing it. It was really, it's something that you, students will never get in any other class. I mean, maybe you'll read an article about somebody, but that's really different than being able to speak to that person and hear them talk. And it's a very different experience. And that's what I was trying to do. You also know Bill Gates and Jack Ma, right? Yeah, I do. Well, I'm, I met Bill Gates at a conference, so I don't really know him. I know about him. And I know he knows about me because he had my book, Moonshots in Education. I know a lot of people that work with him, but uh, Jack Ma, I also met Jack Ma, and we got along really well, and one of the main reasons is teacher to teacher. He's really a teacher, even though he's the founder of Alibaba. He's a great person, and so we had a good, ex good exchange of ideas, let's put it that way. It was great. Some of my former Campanile students are have been working with Jack Ma, as a matter of fact. And, and um, I had another former student whose name's Oliver Weisberg. He was also in the Campanile in the 1990s. And he also learned Chinese and then moved to China and then married a Chinese woman. And it's really exciting. He sort of became Chinese, Oliver Weisberg. 
So I learned a lot about China from him. It's kind of exciting to learn all this stuff from your former students. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember Jesse Moss. Oh, yeah. Jesse Moss was also another student, and he's a videographer, makes films. He's made films for, well, for Hulu. Yeah. And films for... Um, I know he's got some, he had something on Apple TV Plus and Netflix. Yeah, Netflix, I think, and Apple TV. And he's very prolific. He is great. I think he just got shortlisted for an Oscar last year. He could have. He's incredible. The film he was making when the pandemic struck, unfortunately, I don't know if it's continuing or not, but I think he was making a film about the pressure that students feel to get into Ivy League schools and the pressure from their parents and from the school. And, I mean, I think it's a great idea for a film, but I think he got sort of cut off by the pandemic. Right. I remember towards the end of my senior year, actually, it must have been end of my junior year in high school, he started filming for HBO, uh, our classroom. Right. He was. It was great He was, because he had been a student there, so he knew what to film and how to film and interviewed a lot of people. I was going to be in touch with him to find out what's going on because it was a great idea for a topic for a film. And then he also interviewed some people in the other programs too. So Voice and Verde and Viking, all those. I heard you got on the list for Forbes 50 over 50. Oh yeah, I am. You and Kamala Harris, is that correct? That's right. For 2021? That's right. I'm on the list. (laughs) It was really exciting. I went to New York and... It was great. I met the other 50. But the most exciting part, you know, Biden's wife was there. But then the other exciting part is I got to open NASDAQ the next morning, hit the little bell or whatever it is. (laughs) That was really exciting. Me and lots of other women that were also in the same category. Is it surreal to be, I mean, you have governors and vice presidents and all these people in your circle now, but, you know, in 1984, 87, Palo Alto wasn't really Silicon Valley in the same way. There were no tech companies. Is it surreal to go from that and the principal saying you can't have a Macintosh to you're standing next to Kamala Harris? Yes, it is surreal. It is really, it's incredible to have this experience. So I'm really lucky that a lot of my really crazy ideas worked out. And because I brought computers into the classroom, people said to me, those are crazy. And not only that, it's just a fad. It's going to disappear next year. You know, I don't know what you're, what kind of thing are you teaching your students? Tech? Really, what is that all about? <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I was back in 1984, all through the 80s, even the 90s. Most schools didn't use computers in the classroom. Fun. It was, it was exciting. The students all loved it. That's how the program grew. You know how many students there are today, of course. Or you know? Do you have any know? I don't know the exact number. It's between seven and 800 now. Wow. That's good. That's what, a third of the school? Over a third? Um, Actually, it's a little bit more than that because we start at 10th grade. Right. So what made you not just have the crazy idea, but decide to go through with it at that point when you had no support and no sort of backing? Well, you know, like, for example, getting the computers you're talking about? You know, I saw the potential in those computers, and I was just bent on bringing them into the classroom. I just, I I thought they were going to make a huge difference. 
And um, I also used them in my English class. I was probably the only English teacher in the state doing it. I put this all in my book, by the way, How to Raise Successful People. So I'm, I'm not um, telling you something you can't read about. I wanted first to be a journalist. So I have a degree, a master's degree in journalism from Berkeley, but I became a journalist. I worked at the local newspaper when I was 14 years old, and I wanted to be a journalist. In the 1970s and 1980s, um, women were not journalists. It was a male profession. And the only thing that I could do as a journalist was write for the women's section, which is kind of like Dear Abby types of columns or comparing one type of detergent to another. <laughs> really, I can't it, imagine you writing a column about detergent. I, well, I had a very bad time. I didn't do it. It was, they had a women's section of the paper. The paper was divided into news, opinion, sports, and women's. And women, and that's what they want me to write. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so I did it a little bit. But then after a while, I realized that my most effective way to be a journalist was to teach journalism. So I ended up, that's how I ended up being a teacher. Do you remember any of the pieces you wrote while you were a journalist? Yeah, I wrote a lot. I wrote for the Los Angeles Times. And I wrote a column, a teenage column, on what teenagers were thinking today. They allowed me to do that. And it was really fun because I ran around and interviewed all my friends and wrote about what they were doing and had a really great time. But then when I graduated from being a teenager, I couldn't do anything anymore because, you know, at 20, I then became no longer a teenager. And they wanted me to write for the women's section. And anyway, I didn't want to do that. So I didn't. I, I did write for some other publications, some magazines. And you still do some freelance journalism now, right? Oh, yeah. I did a lot for Huffington Post. I remember your, your book, Moonshots in Education, came out in 2015, right? Right. But How to Raise Successful People came out when I was a student. Right, 2019. 2019. And I remember when you were writing it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. You're sitting in your office on a... We thought you weren't there. We thought you weren't in the classroom. Remember, I, was, I would lie down on that beanbag thing that I had, and they would look in and they'd, oh, there she is down there. <laughs> but you wrote every day for several hours, right? Hours. Hours. That's right. For how long? Like two years, something like that? Year and a half. Year and a half? Mm -hmm. And that's how your book came together. Well, then I, I also wrote at home from nine p.m. to midnight every day. It wow. took a long time, you know, and then I had a, um, an assistant who checked my facts because, you know, sometimes you remember things and maybe the facts are wrong. So I had to have a fact checker. Do you remember any of the facts that were checked? Everything. If you go through that book, you'll see there are footnotes everywhere. Every single thing I said was checked. Anything you had to change? Um... Not really. Uh, I think, you know, I came up with my parenting ideas myself. And then what was interesting is that I went back in this book to look whether there was any support for those parenting ideas or, you know, where did I get them? And they were all just my ideas but then I needed to find documentation that showed that what I was saying was supported. That was pretty interesting for me because I hadn't read that documentation before. So today there's a website called Academia and it keeps track of all the people that cite each other for the academics that cite each other. And I have more than 130 different papers that are citing me as a source, which I thought was, I was very happy about that. You know, when I left Palo Alto to, to live in Chicago for college, it really hit me how inaccurately 
people think about Silicon Valley, people who don't live and grow up here? Well, I think the thing that's unique about Silicon Valley is that so many people here are innovators. And so the innovator mindset is kind of in the air. If you've done something and it didn't succeed, so people don't think it's terrible. In another community, if you do something and it fails, people see it very differently. Um, also, the other thing I was thinking about, why would anyone want to spend, you know, the average home price here is like above $2 million for yeah, a house. It's crazy now. It's really crazy. I mean, even apartments, condos are selling for $1.5, million, $2 for condo. There's a house down the street. I don't know if you see the RV in the driveway. And they rent that for the equivalent price of an apartment in Chicago or an apartment in New York. I'm lucky because my family was here, you know, a long, long time ago working for the city. And so they had the property before it was Silicon Valley. But now... You can't afford to buy your own house. It's, it's really... It is crazy. But so why would anybody want to live here, I think they're coming for the mindset and for the other people that are here. It's kind of like living in a very big TED conference because that's why people pay all that money to go to a TED conference because they're all innovators and have that innovator mindset. And it makes a big difference. I have found that I'm much I'm naturally by default much less risk averse than some of my peers in other places like I'm I'm more willing to take strategic risks and be okay with small or even large failures to try something. Where do you think that comes from in in just in people? Well, I think you've grown up with that and I think that it was reinforced in so many ways. Just being here, probably listening to your parents, meeting their friends, and in my program. I mean, that's basically the heart of the program. You know, you can try anything that, you know, sounds somewhat reasonable. I'll let you try it. And um, it was interesting. I did an interview with the group in China three days ago. And one of the people that was interviewing me was a former student who's now the head of this big company in China. And he said he remembered this story that I let them do. And it was a big, it was a risk. But what the story was, we sort of did a sting operation, a Campanile. These high school students. These high school students. And he was one of them. And there was a business, a company on El Camino that was renting videotapes. That's how it all used to work. Remember videotapes? And they were renting porn videos to teenagers. And we did a sting operation, and sure enough, they were renting porn videos to teenagers. There was a whole story about it. Anyway, I can tell you in brief... The operation was set shut down. <laughs> and if they're not, if the school administration is not okay with MacBooks, I can't imagine they're okay with school sanctioned teen purchase of porn. Oh, porn, it was crazy. And so he said, and it's true. It's like you. It was a risk. It was a big risk, right? But I'd like, yeah, we're taking this risk because this is not a good thing for kids to be able to do. No, no porn, sorry. <laughs> I, I also, in leaving Palo Alto and leaving the Bay Area for long periods of time, you come back and realize how eccentric the average person here is. I mean, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and those people, I read a story about them. Uh, okay, this could be completely wrong because I did not fact check this. I wasn't really interested in reading the story because it felt in line with what I, my limited interaction with these people. Something about tasering a goat with the founder of Twitter and eating it. 
because they only <laughs> wanted to eat stuff that they killed personally. Sounds like something that Mark would want to do. Do you know him? <clears throat> yeah, I've met Mark too. Um, when I met Mark, you know, he seemed like a pretty nice guy. And then um, you know, I met his wife, Priscilla. She's great. So uh, not quite sure what happened with Facebook there. Right. Um, but I do know that a lot of my students that worked at Facebook said that they could have done a better job of taking down fake stuff that was just allowed to be there. And I think it was allowed to be there because it was profitable. Mm. So, you know, I'm not a, I don't have any inside information on this. And so it's hard for me to say, but the only thing I do know that I met Mark and he's pretty nice and seemed intelligent and willing to take a risk. And then also I know Cheryl Sandberg and I've always respected her as well. So hopefully it will be Res fixed in some way, the whole structure of Facebook. I mean, he's trying now with Meta. Right. We'll see what happens with Meta. I saw your commentary on that. Oh, wh which one of those did I? Yeah, I've done a few. <laughs> I think. I think. Iron I ironically, I think it was on Facebook. Uh, oh. I think I saw your Facebook post about it. Uh, I think you said something about changing the name won't or superficial things won't it won't change that's right i did do it on facebook yeah changing the name um is not going to change facebook um people still remember what was going on i think what's going on in facebook now though older people are involved in facebook and I think a lot of younger people don't want to be on Facebook. Right. Which I think is big change. Uh, I think they're using Snapchat and TikTok. So um, I don't know what to, what to say, but I'm concerned about the metaverse in general because it's, an, it's like, a, in my opinion a gigantic game, and they want us all to play. And in order to play, you have to have a headset. And then also they want you to buy money for the metaverse, otherwise known as digital currency. And then now they want you to buy land in the metaverse so that you can, I don't know. Anyway, I am leaving my opinion it's kind of open at the moment. I don't know exactly. But I do know some people that say it's going to make the world a better place. And it's like, well, if that's the case, you know, who wouldn't be in favor of it? I just haven't seen how we're going to make the world a better place if we play this game. How do you deal with, and this will be the last question. Thank you so much for doing this, <laughs> by the way. It's uh, been really fun. Yeah, it's been great to see you after... So long. I know. Two years of hibernating with, <laughs> with you know, trying to prevent myself from getting COVID, which I've succeeded, knock on wood. Yes. Glass. Uh, how do you deal with, you're around so many, you're in the circles of so many people who are very influential, mm -hmm. very powerful. How do you deal with when... I know you said you don't know Mark Zuckerberg that well. You just met him. But how do you deal with when those people in your circles make big kind of potentially world-altering decisions that you agree or disagree with and have to be vocal or not vocal about? Well, it's hard because I, I am involved with people that are controlling a lot of the world. And so... You know, I give feedback personally. I don't do it publicly. And I do know Mark, you know, and I've known him for a while. But, you know, if he's not interested in feedback, he has the right not to be interested. Um, 
but I, I am concerned. I'm concerned about deep fakes that are becoming more and more popular. And I don't know if people know deep fakes means pictures that have been altered. And so you think that if you see the photograph of it, it's real, but they do such a great job of altering the photo, you can't tell it's fake. So as long as we have a world where information travels really quickly and you can't check to see if it's true or not, and you have deep fakes, I think, um, I think it's, it's, dang- it's a dangerous world. And I think we need to we need to control it somehow. And the most effective way, I think, to control it is to have people self-control. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's important to work with teenagers, because they are going to inherit the world. And they're inheriting a world that is technically sophisticated. And how, how can you best work in a technically sophisticated world for the benefit of all people. I'll end this interview the same way that you taught us to end interviews in journalism. Anything else that I should have asked you or that you wanted to say that my questions didn't allow? I'm so glad that you were in my program. Thank you. (laughs) No, I just want to thank you for asking really intelligent questions. It's been a very engaging interview. And I must say, this is one of the best interviews that I've had. So congratulations and thank you. Thank you very much, Watch. Thank you.